everyone, this is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast, and today I'm joined with Trip Parker, who is a product manager at SoFi, a fintech company, as well as a founding member of AI and Faith. Uh, and Trip, thanks for joining us today to talk about the theology of Bitcoin. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. This is a, this is a cool topic. Yeah, let's uh, let's dive right in. I was really happy to meet you at that conference, the Faith Driven uh, Entrepreneur Conference recently. And you mentioned something to me that was intriguing. You said that Bitcoin is Christian money. That was a mm. hypothesis that you had. And I yeah. uh, just wanted to explore that further on this podcast and see what you mean by that and why you believe that's the case. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I mean, so first I should say that, yeah, I'm, I mean, you mentioned I'm my background is mostly in, in AI um, and machine learning. Um, so I got into cryptocurrency kind of by accident because uh, it, it was a, a new technology and they just needed someone who was really good at math uh, to, <laughs> to look over it. And so obviously like the AI machine learning space, uh, that's, that's, that worked. So my background, I, you know, I came into this kind of like through uh, happenstance, in other words, this is like something that I was originally looking into or anything else like that. But like I, I came into and I, I've, uh, I've been, you know, steadily going down the rabbit hole of cryptocurrency. Um, I guess my, my thing is that, you know, the more that I thought about it, the more I thought that there's something fundamentally broken about the way that we do money um, and in the modern world with our, our, we'll call it the fiat currencies, the currencies that can just be printed, um, you know, by any government, you know, and issued and spent. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of problems with, with that. Um, one is that it's, it's controlled by, you know, and like a set of individuals and they have their own motivations and, and those kind of things. But the second thing is that it's essentially, the problem is, is that you're constantly printing the money. You're constantly creating new money that can be spent. And so actually the, you know, like the federal reserve has a certain target inflation rate. Like a lot of people don't know that, yep. that they actually target a certain percentage of inflation and their economic reasons for why they say that that's, you know, that that's needed. But I'd like to everyone for, to think about what that actually means. Um, that means is that there's an intent to make the dollars that you earn worth less year over year. Um, and who does that benefit and who does that hurt? Like the people that it hurts are the people that are, are the non-asset owning classes, like the people who don't have a big mortgage who don't have a lot of assets and who are essentially living paycheck to paycheck because mm -hmm. um it's the poorest among us that it's 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 kind of the cruelest tax of all it's a tax on the poor um mm -hmm. that we're doing not explicitly but we're implicitly doing it because we can print these dollars and then direct them in certain ways um and, and like when the money that we print doesn't go arbitrarily to everyone, it's not like they're putting money in everyone's bank account kind of evenly across the board. What they're doing is they're printing it and it's being directed in certain areas. And again, mm -hmm. there are arguments why that's actually efficient and they're, you know, that's actually good that this goes to the banks and the banks lend it out and it spurs economic growth and et cetera, et cetera. So there are arguments against 
what I'm saying at the same time, um, the people that are getting it are the wealthiest among us. I don't think there's any question about that. The people who get access to this new capital that's being created are the wealthiest among us and not the poorest. Mm -hmm. And that seems just prima facie, that should seem weird to you that, that we're, we're okay with that system. The second thing that I would argue is that, um, I, I want, let's go back to the Christian or actually the Jewish uh, sacrifice system, right? So we have the sacrifice system, you know, the sacrificial system where, you know, we take a, a lamb or a goat or whatever, we take it to the altar and we, we, we consecrate it to God and, you know, we sacrifice it to him, right? And so some of that is like a picture of the atonement, right? It's, it's a picture of, you know, like what actually the, the necessary sacrifice for us being right with God. But there's another way of looking at it too, that I think mirrors that and goes along with it is that what we're really saying is I'm going to take something that's really valuable today and I'm going to sacrifice it for something that's going to be better tomorrow for me, right? So like favor with God is more valuable than this goat, than this firstborn, you know, the, the, the prime sheep of my, you know, my, uh, my herd or whatever, like that's not as valuable as what I'm going to get from God. And so I'm making that determination. I'm sacrificing, even though this goat or the sheep or this cow or whatever it is that I'm sacrificing might be super valuable to me, right? I could sell it on the market. I could eat it. Like I, this is a very valuable thing that I have. And so I'm sacrificing it but I'm sacrificing it for something greater. So um, think about what you're doing then with your time. You're sacrificing your time when you go to work and you earn money, right? We're, we're, there's a sacrifice in, in terms of doing this. And so I'm doing it and I'm earning that money back. And so in a sense, I'm, I'm, I am sacrificing my own time in order to get something greater that I value more than the time that I'm spending doing it. I, I, I'm essentially acting out a kind of a sacrifice, but think about what it, what it does then if the sacrifice, the benefit that I'm going to get on the other end gradually declines rather than improves. So I get a bunch of, I get some dollars for my sacrifice. And I put it in my bank and I wait. And then tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next year, maybe 30 years from now, whenever I can no longer work, those dollars are worth a lot less than my time was whenever I actually earned those dollars. Like, what does that say? Like, we're, we're inverting essentially the sacrificial system because what should happen is the sacrifice you should make now should improve over time. Like, it should be worth more in the future than it is actually now. And so that's another thing that I think that we're, we're doing. We're, we're inverting that kind of idea. And over time, what it does is it's kind of corroding, I think, to our society this idea that, yes, I should work and I should be able to save. And those sacrifices I, I make now should be worth more in one year, five years, 10 years than what I gave for them now. But we're, we're, we're not doing that. We're, so, we're intentionally creating more dollars so that if I keep it in that store, it's not going to be worth the same. So mm -hmm. that's like my high level scaffold of an argument. Okay, let me let me think about let me mirror back to you what I heard you say. 
One is that um, as we can print more currency, uh, we end up reinforcing existing inequality, you could say, because people mm -hmm. who are wealthy have greater access to that capital. And so they get a greater proportion of that uh, printed money. And the poor, meanwhile, if, if someone has an asset, that asset might appreciate. And that means that they can benefit a little bit from that. But uh, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, your only revenue stream is your wages. And wages do right. not grow the same way that uh, inflation might grow. And so it's always lagging. Yeah. Wages always lag the the inflationary curve. And so, I mean, I mean, just think of in the last in the last year. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Like just think in the last year, how much money we've created and put into the system. And so who has like our GDP is not higher than it was a year, a year ago, like our productivity is just because of COVID and everything. And again, like not making a statement about what, like what should and shouldn't happen economically. Yes. At the same time, uh, it is undeniable that our economic system is not nearly as healthy. We're not nearly as productive as we were like a year and a half ago. Like we just aren't because we've shut down uh, like huge swaths of our economy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but we printed a lot of money who are, you know, do we think that, you know, I think that Elon Musk is probably worth two times what he was. Yeah. 220 a billion or something like that. Yeah. He's a 220 billion, $220 billion. And again, I, I'm a fan of, of Elon Musk. That's not, it's not a statement, but what I'm, it's not about that or him or Bezos or Gates or anything else like that. But just look at what the, I mean, we have several trillion companies that are worth trillions of dollars now that we didn't have a year and a half ago why mm -hmm. because the the money does disproportionately go it's the mm -hmm. it, we call it them in, in economics you call it the matthew principle right to him who has a lot more will be given to him that has nothing even what he has will be taken away right matthew 9 mm -hmm. so that's what we've seen the poor aren't twice as rich or three times as rich as they were a year and a half ago. The middle class are not two or three times as rich as they were half. You know, these companies are worth two or three times what they were a year and a half ago. The 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 the, the owners and the asset owning class are worth two or three times what they were a year ago. Like I personally have done really well in this last year and a half, but like it, there, it just seems like a it's a problem to me. That this is what's going on, that the system itself seems to reward that. Um, and it seems that the money, like the way that we create money and we spend it and we allocate it is fundamentally why that's possible, because it shouldn't be possible unless we could create money and selectively direct it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be what's going on. And that's why I'd say this is Christian money because it's far more egalitarian in that way. Like there is no bias in terms of who gets more Bitcoin and who's like, who spends it, how it gets allocated, how it gets moved. It is decentralized in that way. And no one actually controls the supply. It's like a, and so in that way, it's, it's, it's more, it's more like God's grace, right? He bestows it freely upon all of us. And, you know, it's up to us to take advantage of it, but it's, it's, it's offered to all of us. And, and I think that Bitcoin is more like that as opposed to, you know, uh, a money printer that someone controls. So, so is your argument, first of all, that actually this, this power that's been given to the federal reserve or a central bank in any country um, is wielded in an unjust way, in, in a sense that uh, it basically reinforces inequality. 
Yes. No, I, I think that I think that's at, at least in effect, that's exactly what happens. Um, I don't I don't necessarily think that this is. Again, so I was I was an econ major also in, in as as well as computer science in college. So I don't think there are, I there are good arguments for why they're saying that they're doing these things. Like yeah. it's not it's not as if like these are. I don't want to say like oh these are bad people or they're intentionally doing it even, but the effect I don't think is deniable that this is actually what happens mm-hmm. um, in in practice because. Think about how hard it was, for instance, because I think there's practical problems with the way that they want to do it and if they tried to do it a better way. Okay. But think about the practical problems of last year whenever they wanted to give small business loans to everyone to keep people on payrolls, Yeah. right? That, that small business program. Yep. That was a gigantic mess, Yep. right? Because how are you going to verify how what – each small business's payroll is how many people they have. How do you make sure that this is not like fraudulent and the scam artist or whatever? So there's practical problems if you tried to print the money and then allocate it evenly. Yeah. In that way, there's just practical problems with doing it that way because you can't verify all of these things. It was a gigantic mess, and a lot of money went to a lot of people who had fraudulent business that just set it up and got an interest-free loan and then all that kind of stuff. And I, I think a ton of money went to like overseas scam artists and those yep. kind of things. So what's the easier way then? Okay, well, we don't want that because the American people are not going to be happy about us printing a bunch of money and sending it to um, a bunch of scam artists. You're going to get pushed back to that. So what's the easier way to do it? Okay, let's just print money. We'll get to the banks and then the banks figure out who to loan the money out to, right? Because like banks, you have to have a bank charter and an account with the Federal Reserve. Like we know who these people are. There's only like so many of them. There's not 300 and something million people, you know, vying for this money. So what we can do is we narrow down who we have to vet and give the money out to. And then we mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, say you figure out where this money should go. But again, like who are the banks going to loan the money out to or give the, the money they out already to? Know. Yeah, the people that they already have a relationship with. Correct. And yeah. so what we've done is we've we've given the money printing to the privileged, to yeah. the the higher class people. Um, and there's good re- – like again, all of the things that I just said are easily explainable. You could totally ma- – I totally get why they do it that way. Mm-hmm. But it's, it just seems wrong. It seems fundamentally broken to me that that's so, the way that we do it. Now, with uh, with Bitcoin, there would be no power to be able to print money. There right. would be no power to distribute the money differently like that. Correct. Uh, and so you wouldn't even have that lever, right, no. to be able to distribute relief. No. Like that. So no. what would happen instead under, let's say, a Bitcoin? It's a good question. Money? I mean, the argument, the, the best argument against my, the best argument against my position would be um, that deflation is actually uh, more dangerous than inflation. Mm. Um, that deflation means that my money, if it, if it, if I believe that my my dollar or my Bitcoin is going to be worth way more tomorrow than today, I will cease trading with you. Right? I won't buy your services. You'll pull it out of circulation. Yeah. And I'll just hold it, it because yep. tomorrow it'll be worth a lot more. Um, and then I could still buy your services, but I don't. Um, but I don't have. Uh, 
as strong of an incentive to buy it today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm just giving the economic argument for it. Yeah. And so what happens then is, you know, uh, the, the economy grinds to a halt and you can actually see this with the, I mean, you, there's arguments that, that that's exactly what happened in the Great Depression. As the Great Depression happened, we had to run on the banks. And what the what the Federal Reserve, the argument is, is that what the federal the federal government should have done is print more money um, to make sure that no one had any incentive to take all their money out of the banks and stop trading and all those kind of mm-hmm. things. Um, and uh, instead, they tightened the money supply. And uh, then deflation happened. And then what happened was the entire economy ground to a halt because then I could I didn't have access to credit to expand my business. No one was buying my services anyway. And so we all stopped trading with each other. And um, so that's that's the best argument, I think, against my position is that that could happen. And I think that that's possible. Um, at the same time, I think that we uh, I think a sometimes like increase this ever increasing consumer economy. I also think that there are problems with it. And so this idea that we need to constantly encourage people to consume and trade and and do more than what they're doing, that has its own problems. We've seen the environmental impact of like the, the consumerist economy. Um, And I think there's problems there. So um, I also think think that, yeah, I also think tying it back to your analogy about the Jewish sacrificial system, I, the way I heard you describe it, it sounded a little bit transactional, but at least as, at least as I read it, it was actually more relational. It wasn't that I'm going to give the, my God uh, offering and then get more blessing in return as much as like it's showing that I have a relationship with God who has been the source of my blessings and is a kind of an acknowledgement of that. And it seems like that relational aspect, plus you mentioned about time earlier and how um, our time gets devalued through inflation. And it's just, I think it's just fascinating in our faith, at least, that the Sabbath is such a huge practice because you could argue it's a completely wasted sacrifice day yeah. from the from the framework of pure optimization or even consumerism. But from the from a more relational perspective, it's actually the biggest gift that we could receive a day in which right. we have to do no work and we can right. receive the blessings of God and enjoy who God is and, and one another and kind of giving us a taste of heaven in which there will not need to be the kind of toil and labor that we have right. uh, on earth today. Yeah, I think there'll be work, but there won't be, it's not going to be toil in the exactly. same way that it is now. Yeah, exactly. We'll be yeah. redeemed from that curse that happened, you know, in, in Genesis um, in our, mm-hmm. on our labors. And so it, it seems like uh, that it seems like built into the sacrificial system almost, or the Sabbath, you have these things that indicate that life is not purely economic built. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not purely productivity. It's not purely, uh, accumulation of wealth and all these other things. And I think also of this, the scripture where Jesus says, like, don't store your treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy, but store your treasures in heaven. Um, and in that same passage, he later says, you can't serve God and money. Uh, right. And it's just like, it, it's like when I read these texts and think about even that aspect of it, do you see, um, do you see, do you see Bitcoin making a difference on that level where as quote unquote Christian money, it actually makes a difference when, when it comes to the accumulation of wealth, greed or things yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, I think so because I think that that there's, yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think that like one of the things that especially what you see is a, it's a pretty stark division in our society in terms of the larger cultural behaviors between the upper class and the lower class. Yeah. So the upper class like says a lot of things, but like, let's look at what they do. They stay married at much higher rates than the lower class do they commit a lot less crime they have children in uh within wedlock they do a lot of things 
that um, that we would as Christians be like, yeah, these are good things, right? I and I think one, and I think one of the reasons is that they have a certain kind of. I think that the 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 way that we're doing the money thing is we actually by by devaluing the money that people are earning, especially the people that are like the more transactional nature of I get a paycheck, then I pay my rent and then I have yeah. to buy food and that kind of stuff. Surviving. What we do is we encourage them to actually chase more money in ways that, um, that I have, if I own my house or I have assets or whatever, and I'm a little bit more wealthy, I have, I have more security Absolutely. in some sense then I, I don't have those kind of problems. I don't have that kind of like, I've got to hustle. I've got to like, like, how can I get a, you know, those kind of things. I feel like we, we, the, the focus for the, like the poorest classes of our society are just like, how do I make ends meet? How do I make things? Um, how do I get more? What seems so challenging about that is that inflation's at a certain percentage. And so you're right that there, you could argue that there's a loss in, in some of that wealth that's accumulated. But it seems like uh, it seems like it, the real challenge is that wages are really hard to grow. Like revenue yeah. is really hard to grow, you know, and even more so than any kind of defla inflationary effect. It's really hard to make more money through your labor or through your skill right. or through your knowledge or whatever it is that you're trying to sell. Uh, and right. then, and then on the on the flip side, you know, there's the question of generosity too, which is like, is there a way that uh, using a, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin increases generosity? I did. I did hear some ideas about at least overseas, like uh, transferring money overseas. So people oftentimes yes. immigrate, make more better wages here and then send money overseas to help. That's, so, okay. So that, that's a really great there, example. But... That's actually something that I'm working on in my job okay. is, yeah. So um, remittance payments. Yeah. Um, the average remittance payments from the, the average uh, remittance fee sending money from the United States to Mexico is 5.6%. Wow. That's very high. And that's, well, that's high, except not for remittance payments. That's actually not that high for remittance payments. If I wow. tried to send money to India, it would be double digits easy Yeah, um, from the United States, but that's 5.6%. So that's, it's, it's a re it's a high fee compared to other kinds of spending domestically. Yeah. Um, and you know, these are usually like not huge amounts of money, um, that are being sent. So 5.6%, but it's a lot of money to, you know, mom in Mexico city, yeah. right. Um, that we're losing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Bitcoin, for instance, flowing over the lightning network can be done instantly, um, and can be done, uh, extraordinarily cheaply, like a fraction of a percent. Mm -hmm. Um, and mom doesn't have to do a lot of the other dangerous things. So think about, for instance, if I wanted to send money to mom in Mexico City, I'm sending it's 5.6%, but I'm sending it through Western Union. So now she's got to get on a bus, maybe go an hour or something like that to actually go to the Western Union, you know, station, get her cash out. Mm -hmm. um, and at the other end of it, you don't know who's standing there. They know that like there, there are people like there are a lot of there's a lot of crime that happens outside of those kind of money transfer stations in the yeah. third world, especially because they know that's where people are going to get cash. Right. Um, and so they go there. And so mom may go out and get held up after she's even gotten that money. And so it's not even taking into account that, but, but what if, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But what if I could for a fraction of a cent uh, send Bitcoin over the lightning network, to mom in Mexico city and it shows up on her phone 
with a digital wallet that's already integrated that she doesn't have to go anywhere and it's free is basically free and instant like that's that's a huge huge impact to these people's lives she would that still is to be able to convert the bitcoin into local currency to spend it right? maybe i mean maybe if you know yes so you could you there are partners that we have in in these countries that would actually immediately liquidate that if she mm -hmm. wanted to but in yeah. other countries like el salvador now it's legal tender now you Bitcoin. can go to yeah. subway and actually spend that Bitcoin. lightning and it it never it doesn't have to ever exit the Bitcoin ecosystem for you to receive and get it immediately. That's why El Salvador did it because a huge percentage of their GDP is remittance payments. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that it's, it, we're just bypassing. This is called, I mean, in the sense that what we're doing is we're bypassing rent seekers, people yep. who are standing in between um, people actually doing productive economic activity um, and just providing, uh, you know, a service that's not really technically needed anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't need Western Union. We can do this electronically, immediately, and basically for free. And I think cryptocurrency is the most promising way of doing that because it lets us bypass all the current rent seekers who have put up all these regulatory blocks in between people who actually just want to live their lives, buy their food, help their families, give to their church, whatever so that's that's another like remittance payments is one of my passions like this is this is something that i think bitcoin is actually going to end up really significantly impacting the world in a good way yeah it seems like that makes a difference for the developing world uh yeah in ways, yeah in ways that it's, it's really innovative basically you couldn't have done it otherwise um yeah let me dive deep um, a little bit into what is it that makes you know western union exists because people needed a trusted network to be able yeah. to transfer cash uh what makes bitcoin something people can trust and like the whole process in which incentives are aligned so that you actually know that you can rely on this. Thing. Yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, bit, I mean, at this point, I'm going to call Western Union and some of these networks uh, rent seekers, but they weren't always that because you needed a you needed a trusted network yeah. um, and someone to actually hold the cash and make sure that it was available on the other end and those kind of things. And so that took money and people and all that kind of stuff. So they they used to be I'm, I'm calling them rent seekers now, but they exist. There's a very good reason why those companies existed. Yeah. Um, and they were they needed to be developed. They they actually served a very useful purpose. The thing about Bitcoin is that it's it's decentralized finance. So no one individually is holding the ledger. Um, the ledger being who owns what Bitcoin and where what Bitcoin is moving and that kind of thing. It's all decentralized and um, secured through just cryptographic functions. So these are just really hard. These are just math problems. The same technology that's securing your bank account or your passwords and those kind of things are the exact same technology that we use um, to, to decentralize this ledger. So it's not actually up to you or me or whatever. We're all listening for all the transactions that are happening on Bitcoin and each keeping an individual ledger. Um, and like the protocol itself makes it so that like the, the consensus is what's the truth. And so there's no individual, which is why, to your point, you can't just print more Bitcoin. No one's in control of this. It's all of our consensus across the entire network, which is gigantic. That's one of the strengths of the Bitcoin network, as opposed to other cryptocurrencies, is just how large and how liquid it is. There are so many people listening for these transactions and um, 
and making sure that it's being enforced and we're not allowing transactions that uh, that go off ledger or anything else like that. The, the reason that that's so powerful is because, yeah, now I don't need Western Union. Now we're all like we're all contributing in some small way to the stability and the security of the entire network because we're all listening. We're all validating. We're all running the, the, the hash functions to confirm that, yes, hey, you actually did sign this transaction with your you know, private key. And that's how I know that this is legitimate and we're all enforcing it. And so it's, it's a much more collaborative process that than all, what you get. That all is referring to miners, right? That's referring to people who are doing Bitcoin mining or, or just the nodes or just the nodes it's like, you know, some people are running nodes that aren't actually even, they're not mining, um, but they are validating that, Hey, this new block that this miner says that he just got published, I need to validate that this is a legitimate one and all the, the digital signatures match up and everything else like that. And so like I'm validating, even though I'm not actually, um, I'm not actually uh, mining um, for a new block. I'm just validating that. Yes, Chris, Chris's mining block is valid. Like he did the work. These yeah. are all legitimate and safe and secure. And I'm going to accept this as a valid transaction block. But that's definitely only the case. It's kind of like a, like you could say, a, a new, instead of the Federal Reserve, you have a more distributed Federal Reserve of, Correct. that's open to people if they wish to participate. Because holding Bitcoin, you don't actually run a node. You don't actually no. mine. You're not really right. a part of that network. But no, it, you're not. But, the, but, but there's a lot. allowed of, to become a part of it. Anyone at all is allowed. And that's why all the transactions on Bitcoin are completely public, too. They're all published. And so like you could start a node today, download every single Bitcoin transaction that has ever happened and run your own node. And you don't have to pay anyone anything to do it. Um, you just need like a Raspberry Pi will be sufficient for it. It's cheap mm -hmm. and it's free. And that's one of the reasons that like whenever China banned Bitcoin, um, the hash rate fell for a little bit because all these mining um all these mining uh, stations and all the nodes went down because you had to shut them down in China. Within uh, within a couple like a, a month, we had already reached back to the hash rate that had happened before, and the number of nodes have gone up. The number of nodes and and mining blocks that have mine, been mined in the United States has gone up. I think four hundred and thirty percent in the last couple months, and the reason is because people just okay, I don't need to do it then. All I need is the internet electricity and some, you know, a little bit of computer hardware and I can just unplug, move it, replug in. It's extremely durable in that way, um, which is really powerful because yeah, yeah, anyone can be a part of this. Like the Federal Reserve is the only one that knows who, like how much money is parked in their accounts. Like they're the ones that it's a centralized one. It's a centralized, you know, system. This is decentralized. Anyone can participate. So in that way, it's, it's a lot more democratic too. That someone in the someone in the third world in you know Argentina or Venezuela or El Salvador or Africa could just plug in a Raspberry Pi um, and connect it to the internet, and all of a sudden they're validating and or mining Bitcoin transactions and allowing those transactions to flow through, and they're they're participating in it. So. I think that's beautiful. 
it's true. Although I, I I do hear that you know it's very expensive to get a real mining rig and to actually a mining rig is different. Mine yeah, is very expensive. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No nodes are nodes are too. really cheap. But yes, mining because yeah. now there's now you're competing, right? So now there's specialized GPUs and all those kind of things to actually yeah. like do it faster. And so there's you know it's energy it's you know energy intensive and all that kind of stuff. So like yeah. you it's it's not a it's not a oh that's another thing that I we should mention like the energy thing. Yep. Because that's sometimes I get a lot of the uh, a lot criticism. of pushback, yeah. uh, criticism of uh, Bitcoin regarding the energy usage. Here's the thing, and this goes back to just a straight economic argument, um, but then it leads into the environmental one. So the criticism is that um, to that that Bitcoin is is wasteful, right? Because we're we're spending all this electricity on just essentially. Uh, mining Bitcoin and guess and check algorithms. And, you know, we're wasting a bunch of electricity that, you know, we shouldn't be wasting. And that's, that's not being a good steward of God's creation. So that's like the, the, uh, the arguments against it um, from the Christian perspective. Here's my thing. And here's my argument. Actually, it's incentivizing exactly the right thing. Because um, if you think about it, if you were going to start a mining rig, like say I get the hardware, forget the hardware for a second, and you have a mining rig and you just need to figure out where, where am I going to go and spend, where am I going to plug this in and start mining? Where are you going to choose? Like Cheap, Cheapest energy that you can cheap, get. Best, yeah. Best exactly. Cheap energy. Right. So best source of cheap energy. Where is the best source of cheap energy? Hydro, as far as I know. Hydro is really good. Geothermal. Hydro real is really good. Geothermal is really good. Actually, wind and solar are really good. One of the reasons that wind and solar are really, really good, if you can find a good place for them, is because you don't, I mean, it's the problem with wind and solar, but it's also the benefit of wind and solar. Uh, the problem with it is that you don't know when the sun's going to shine or the wind's going to blow. Right. And so yeah. sometimes uh, you're not producing enough electricity for the local community. But sometimes, but sometimes you're producing way more than you possibly could use, right? We don't have battery technology to store all of that electricity indefinitely, right? And so what happens is, is that what you're, you're finding is that that's one of the reasons Eastern Washington, there's the hydro, but then there's also a ton of wind power in like Wenatchee. Mm -hmm. Wenatchee's, Wenatchee, Washington is one of the, one of the top, uh, you know, mining uh, uh, towns in the world. Right. A lot of people don't know that, but it's huge in to Bitcoin mining. And one of the reasons is you have the you have the stable hydroelectric power that's cheap, but then you also have a ton of wind farms out there. And so what happens on windy days or windy weeks is they have way more electricity than they could possibly use in the local community. Mm -hmm. And so that energy is super cheap. It's basically free because it's going to go to waste if we don't use it. I right. See. And so what happens is, is that it's actually an incentive to build more renewables rather than fewer, because think about it. If you were going to spend, say, say you're an energy company and you want to spend $10 billion and we need to build some kind of energy factory. Well, well, I could build a, you know, I could build a nuclear plant. Maybe I could build, you know, whatever. And you're like, well, you could do solar. And you're like, yeah, but the problem is, is that, you know, there's going to be days where I'm going to have to purchase energy from this coal plant because the sun's not going to be shining. 
And then there's going to be other days that I'm going to produce way more energy than I could actually use. Um, and that's going to go to waste. And so like you have to do that cost analysis. But what have I told you? Hey, on the days that you produce more electricity than the local residential and industrial areas could possibly use, I will turn on my Bitcoin mining equipment and I will purchase that energy from you. So you have a built in customer that can come online whenever there's excess energy and go offline whenever you need that electricity for someone else and it's no longer cost effective. So actually what it is, is it's a safeguard and it's a really good incentive to build more renewables, solar and wind and things that have the potential, at least of producing cheap, basically free energy that's renewable um, that you don't get with like coal or oil or natural gas. But are you saying like, are there actually, are they, are Bitcoin mining, are Bitcoin miners actually um, turning off their yes. rigs? Yes, absolutely. When the, when the solar wind power is not active. Yes, correct. Yes, that's exactly what they do whenever, um, because what happens is the price changes, right? Because whenever the, the, we're, the solar, while well, you're getting a lot of sun and a lot of wind, um, you're constantly running that calculus of, well, how much, how much is it costing me to run this rig and how, likely am I to actually win this mining competition that I'm going on. And so what happens is when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, it's really cheap for me to keep running this rig. And so my, my calculus changes, but whenever the sun, like when all of a sudden the wind's out, the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining and I'm this electricity prices go up in the peak times, then I just turn it off. Um, and that's absolutely happening across the world um, is whenever those prices change, mining rigs go up and like online and offline based on that. And so it's a, it's actually a really beautiful system for accelerating our transition from the more fossil fuel type energy sources and into something that's a lot more uh, renewable and cheap. Let's talk about let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier. China banned Bitcoin, right? Mm. That seems like a risk that uh, sovereign states could choose to basically ban it, and then all of the treasures you stored on the blockchain uh, will have been taken away. So, yeah. it, is that is that actually a real risk for people who are who are choosing to you know use the blockchain, or is it mainly for people in China? I suppose where the government yeah, I mean, it, I don't know, I don't know in the in the United States how you could actually ban. It's just because of our intellectual property laws and, and various things like that. I don't see how they could actually ban it. Um, I think that actually what we saw with China is that them banning it didn't actually affect the network. And so there are going to be authoritarian states that could ban it um, and that have, but it didn't actually affect anything. Like Bitcoin today, I think, is at, at the time that we're talking, let me just look. Yeah, I think it's at an all-time high today so like they did that only a couple months ago the the network proved extraordinarily uh you know capable of shifting where the mining and the nodes were being run and all those kind of things and so it, it proved itself remarkably stable um for such a large company you know the largest country on earth wow. um so that so that that's a, a reason for hope um i don't know how in the in the west especially the united states how you could actually ban it um, because I can run it from my computer. Um, and it, like, I don't need a, I don't, you don't actually need like a specialized set of hardware or anything else like that. This is not like, 
owning a machine gun where it's a specialized set of hardware that you would need in order to do it. So you could ban that hardware. Any computer would do. Um, so I, I don't guess, know how you, I, I guess how you could. Yeah. It's just more like um, if China's able to, to ban it or to at least rule it illegal, um, then regardless of the resilience technically of the network itself, uh, for, if you were a Chinese citizen who was, who was holding your assets in Bitcoin, all of a sudden, within your country at least, you have no way to get your money back out. Um, it's stuck. not not within the country, but I mean, yeah. here's the thing: that's been the problem with that's been the problem with the Chinese economy for a long time. Like, the, you know, if you if you drive up to, you know, a few years ago, I was up in Vancouver, um, uh, British Columbia. Yeah, and uh, you drive through there, and you notice at night, like there are certain apartment buildings that are ninety percent dark right and you know it's like seven o'clock at night so like all the lights are off and mm -hmm. it's like only a couple of them are are actually on and you're like well yeah. that's weird um why is that um and they're not for sale you look on the the real estate website and that stuff. their money there in the real exactly yeah. exactly and so like uh, like that's been the problem in china for a long time is that these people they, they have the money so uh so like they've been doing that for a long time is storing it outside of the country now if they wanted to liquidate that they could sell their apartment but they still have the problem of getting that money back into china in a way that the the CCP wouldn't find out about it or you know enforce it or confiscate it or whatever and so like they're they're already doing that um and then and the, here's the thing bitcoin is far more liquid than your apartment like it is way easier to sell some bitcoin on an exchange than mm -hmm. it is to sell an apartment building where there are signatures and identity verification and all those kind of things. And so in a way, it's actually a much safer place for them to park their money in order to, or their, their, their storage of assets than it is what they were doing, which was a lot of times just buying real estate because yeah. the CCP can't confiscate an apartment in Vancouver um, the same way that they could confiscate an apartment in Beijing. Yeah. They, the CCP also can't confiscate Bitcoin and Bitcoin is available anywhere. I can liquidate that. I do not need to be in Vancouver to sign some real estate documents or anything else like that in order to liquidate Bitcoin. Um, I can do that from anywhere in the world. So I actually, I think that that's a, it's a safer place for them to try and, you know, um, to get around the authoritarian states than it is. And it's a much more flexible way um, than what they were doing, but that's not a new problem that they've yeah. been doing. I mean, that's been a problem forever. It just has more volatility than real estate. Probably it does for yeah. sure. It has more volatility. So you have to, th another thing that means just think long-term, like that's what this is. This is not like a short-term thing. So like whenever I tell people about Bitcoin or whatever, like, listen, I buy Bitcoin, I dollar cost average it. I do not think about it. It is not money that I need. So I would not say like, oh, put it in there. And then if you need it in a month, you can pull it out. Like don't, this is money that you're saving for long-term um, for some other purpose um, and just just hold it and wait. Like it's, it's not something that you should think, don't try to time the market or anything else like that. So treat it like any other volatile stock that you possibly would do. I would not, I certainly wouldn't say put all your money in Bitcoin today. And then, you know, if you need it, you know, a week for now or whatever, that's a bad idea because it could, it could crash by 50% or it could go up by 50%. And so today's a really good day for Bitcoin 
Um, but you know, a month from now it, you know, it may not be. And so I think that once, once, um, Bitcoin starts to become more ubiquitous in terms of payment networks. So you're seeing it with El Salvador right now and more and more MasterCard and Visa are going to let you start using your, like start issuing cards where you can pay in Bitcoin. So I think that once it starts being used more for payments rather than trading, it's mm. going to be less volatile than it is currently. Um, but right now, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I would, but, but if I, if I had, if I had some assets that I want, if I was in China and I was worried about the CCP confiscating my money, okay, I'll take some volatility for a highly liquid asset that will, will appreciate over time because, you know, I mean, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. That's it. Can't mm -hmm. be more than that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So let's, let's tie it back to, um, kind of maybe summarize your perspective about it, that. This really is, it, I've heard you say that it addresses some of the shortcomings of our existing uh, monetary system uh, in the United States. And, but I, I feel like I haven't, I don't have a clear picture yet in my head of like, well, this is, this is what makes it more in line with God's kingdom. You know, mm -hmm. this is what, this is how it, it promotes the values of the kingdom and people's, you know, identity as God's image bearers uh, worldwide or anything like that. Like, how would you, how would you link those dots together? to kind of paint a clear picture so that so yeah, people, well, you know, people would see that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess there, there's a few, a few points. One, it's not a system that can be manipulated for the benefit of the wealthy and the privileged. It's not something that it's something that is, it's very even handed toward everyone who participates in it in a way that our current monetary system is not. And in that way, I think it's more in line with God's kingdom. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would say is that it also doesn't encourage um, our, our current credit culture of borrowing um, and spending and consuming. And it encourages like diligent work and saving for the future. Like one of the, the wisdom of like Noah, right. Was him seeing the future or like there's other parables, like build your house upon a rock, not upon sand. And so we, what we want to do is people say, listen, I should, or, or you think about Joseph in Egypt, right? You see something coming up, some future need. Um, it is a wise thing to do to save for that. So store up grain and prepare for the trials of this life that is wise is that ultimate no because even if i starve to death in egypt like god is still god and i you know if i'm his servant i will be with him at the same time it is a wise thing to do and so bitcoin encourages like taking your time storing up for the future and not borrowing and spending and consuming in the same way that our current fiat currency does. And so those are like the, the main two things that I think that people need to, to take away is that a, like it's, it's, it's fairer to the poorest among us. And then B, it encourages you to think about the future and not just consuming today. Like what should I take today? How much should I borrow? How much should I do? Because like everyone now is doing all this calculus of take out a bigger mortgage or a smaller mortgage or whatever, because well, I can borrow at 2.875% today, but our inflation rate's 5%. So I'm actually like monetarily incentivized to borrow as much as I possibly can, right? 
which is very not what the Bible says about borrowing and interest rates and all those kind of things. And so, so those would be the two things. I think it incentivizes us to think about storing for the future and preparing and being more conservative um, in, in some of these areas. But then also it, it doesn't allow us to privilege the wealthy. Um, even if we're not doing it intentionally, that's what our current system does. And I think that's a very unchristian way of, of going about money. Thanks for summarizing it. It's just interesting because it seems like the wealthy are often the ones who are plowing tons of money into Bitcoin, whether it's Jack Dorsey or Elon oh, Musk or any of the For sure. Right? I mean, well, some of them and, and some of them actually like Jack Dorsey, like his arguments is actually this is better. This is democratizing money, you know, in, in a I way. See. So like he's actually I think like he's at least saying like this is why like this is going to be something that's fairer for everyone than the current system. And so, yes, a lot of them are. But then I mean, but then just look at the banks like Jamie Dimon, the, the CEO of the, the largest bank in the world, J.P. Morgan Chase. He hates Bitcoin. Right. So like this, it's, it's a mixed message. But Jack Dorsey's argument is actually that. Um, this is fairer, um, actually. And so he's doing it for some of the same reasons that I'm arguing we should we should be in favor of this for. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of people who, uh, yes, there's I mean, rich people are going to make their money. Right. They have a lot of money to spend and they can yeah. buy assets, including Bitcoin. Yeah. At the same time, um, at the same time, th that's true, whether or not Bitcoin's around, they're going to buy things. And um, as long as they have privileged access to the creation of new money, then we're, we're just going to exacerbate this problem over and over again. And listen, I'm a capitalist. So this, I'm not like, I'm not going on a communist manifesto or anything else like that. Like this, I like, there are reasons why everyone's doing this, but it does seem fundamentally unfair. And so I would argue that this system, at least it doesn't solve all of our problems. It removes some of the perverse incentives that we have in the current system. And so that, that would be my argument. So in some ways, regardless of what happens to Bitcoin long term, it is a model for a different way of yeah. doing money right. that could be more fair or more just for people. Because as I hear it today, I'm I'm putting myself in the shoes of like a I'm a, if I'm a small business entrepreneur as I as I am, you know, right. like does how does this actually impact me? Or if I was a, a worker, my wage doesn't actually go up. My wage is not paid in Bitcoin. If I put I could dollar cost average, like you said to try to make it a store of value over the long term, but it's very volatile. And if I'm really living paycheck to paycheck, I don't even have that right. anyway. And yeah. so it's like, it still feels like the existing barriers make it difficult to have access to that. Um, but right. No, that's why I think, way, that's where I think we need to, yeah. yeah, I mean, no, I think you're right. I think that's why like us in the tech community need to make it more accessible so that it's, it's a lot more. And like I said, like once, once payment networks and once I can actually spend my Bitcoin at the grocery store, for instance, or my landlord will actually accept it in terms of my rent payment and those kind of things. Once we build those systems, then, um, I think a, the, the price of Bitcoin will stabilize and then you will be able to, you will actually be able to be paid in Bitcoin. And so I think there's a technological thing that we need to do um, to, in order to make all that possible. So like, it's not, some of it's on like me and you, right? Uh, like us who like work in technology to, to make this a, a tool and build out the ecosystem because Western Union and Visa and MasterCard, that wasn't built in a day, right? That wasn't built in a, that, that's a hundred years in the making, this whole current monetary system. Mm -hmm. And so Bitcoin is a part of it, but there's going to be other technology solutions that we need to build alongside of it to really make it a reality 
for the poorest among us. But that's the promise that I see. I see. Uh, the promise is we could actually use it for this purpose. So that means I mean, now I can just take it. I think we can close on this note. You as a Christian working in the field of cryptocurrency, you see a way that your labors are aligned with your faith that mm. that motivate you to be able to do that innovation that's necessary so that it actually fulfills the promise that as of yet maybe is not quite fulfilled yet. Yep, that, totally. That's what I, I, I mean, yeah. I'll, yes, and I'll, I'll end another. I feel like for us Christians who work in you know technology, I feel like that's always the case. We always feel that way, right? Like we're <laughs> we're almost there, right? Yeah. There's always something that like it's not where we want it to be, and, and it reminds me. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll stop after this, but it reminds me of the. Uh, I don't know if you've read the story "Leaf by Niggle" by J.R.R. Tolkien. I have, I, I have, I forgot this, the, the crux of it. You should remind them. Yeah, so, 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 so it's a really fascinating one, but it's a, um, so everyone should read it. It's, it's freely available online. Um, but basically it's a story of this guy who um, is, he has this vision of a tree that he wants to paint. And it's kind of like the, his life's work. Like this is what he feels like the purpose of his life is, um, mm. is to is, is like his labor. And, you know, he's just, a, but he's stuck on one leaf. He can never get past the one leaf that he wants that he, I got to get this one leaf perfect. Right. Uh -huh. And so he's drawing it and then he gets distracted and his neighbor's annoying and all this kind of stuff. And so he, he can never actually finish it. So he's like erasing it, redrawing parts of it, doing all that kind of stuff. And, but he has this vision of this leaf being a part of a much larger tree that is beautiful and mm -hmm. eternal, uh, whatever. Anyway. He ends up dying and going to heaven. Um, and uh, I won't spoil all everything that happened in the middle, but at the end, he sees the tree that he had in his mind the whole way. Mm. He saw like the, that tree that, that he saw the leaf and then the whole tree of what he actually was trying and was more real than what he was able to do on the earth. And so mm. – I, I connect my work in that way, especially in software, because you're always writing and rewriting software. Absolutely. And the thing that I wrote two or three years ago is not the thing that we need now and whatever. So I feel like sometimes I'm like niggle drawing that leaf where I'm drawing something and then erasing a part of it and redoing it and whatever. And so that's that's the way that I look at this is that we, I'm never going to get to where exactly the vision that I'm pitching here is never yeah. going to be where I actually get to, mm -hmm. but I can get closer to it. And then ultimately, none of the, none of my aspirations will ultimately be realized on this earth fully, but they will be realized in heaven. And mm -hmm. so that's the way that I look at it. So that's a that's a great perspective to have. And it's just funny as you were talking about rewriting software. I was thinking of connecting it to inflation. It sounds like there's like this built-in devaluation of the software that we write over time, <laughs> yep, totally. and you have to keep making up for it. So yep. uh, yeah, that's just funny connection. Well, Trip, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Theotech Podcast. If you'd like to support these conversations around the theology of technology, you can do so at patreon.com slash theotech. And until next time.